Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. The text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. These are the words of God. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And I pray your spirit would take these words from your word and drive them into our hearts. Show us the way of application, the way of obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Reformed Christians, we think naturally in terms of covenants. A lot of our churches are named covenant thus and such, covenant this and that. I had a friend years ago who accused us of thinking in terms of covenant peanut butter and covenant jelly. Everything, everything is covenant. Well, that's true actually, but we won't pursue that. We do this when we're thinking about our salvation and the covenant of grace We also do it when it comes to some of our horizontal relationships. We have a rich understanding, for example, of the covenant of marriage. And then related to marriage, we also think of the family in covenantal terms. Covenant marriage results in covenant children. So we are covenant families. Our children are covenant children. This means that when our children are brought into the faith, they are introduced into the universal church. They're introduced to universal realities, the Christian faith generally, but there's more than that. They also are individuals who, for the most part, grow up in a particular congregation. That is this one. Most of the kids in our congregation are growing up in a particular church. And this has additional ramifications. We think of them a certain way, and since they've been here their entire life, they, begin, they think of us in a certain way. They think of the adults in a certain way. They think of church in a certain way. And what we want to do is have that way that we think of them and they think of us be biblically grounded. They are not just brought to the faith generically. They are brought to a particular church, and they grow up to maturity within a particular church, and that has covenantal ramifications. If you were to get down on one knee after the service and look across the room, you're going to see a whole second demographic reality uh, down there. There's a second population at the three-foot-high level. There are a lot of kids growing up in this congregation. Now, you might say, well, I've been to other churches where there are a lot of kids. Yes, there are a lot of kids, but what do you mean, what do you mean by covenant realities. It's not just a word we're using. It's not just a tag we put on uh, what, we're, what we're doing. There are a number, a number of enormous practical ramifications. You just saw a couple of infants baptized. You saw children included that way. We, on a weekly basis, we have communion. You see children included as we come to the table. You also see, if you've been in this congregation for any length of time at all, you see what I can only describe as an extraordinary commitment to Christian education. Overwhelmingly, the kids growing up in our community are receiving a Christian education one way or the other, whether Logos School or an online Christian school or Whitehorse or homeschooling. There is a high level, well over 90 percent, 
a high level of commitment to Christian education. And that didn't just appear out of nowhere. There, there are uh, doctrinal underpinnings to all of that. And on top of that, uh, if you were to get down on your knee and look across the, uh, the room at all the, the second population, there's another factor, and that is they're here with us. They're in the same room. Um, it, in many churches, what's ha what happens is the children are taken off to children's church, and they, it's like a separate, distinct, segregated congregation. And for many, many years now, we have practiced a, um, a family worship where the entire uh, the entire family comes. And if a you know if a kid's flipping out, they can be taken out to a room where the sermon is piped in. But for the most part, all the kids are here with us, and they're here with us because they are part of the congregation. They are, we want to approach God all together. Now, we also, this is not just a, a whim that the elders settled on sort of randomly. We know that there's an enormous amount of work involved. If you've got three little ones or four little ones or seven little ones, if you've got little ones, we know that your row could be something of a rodeo over, right? We know about that. We know about that because you've got, you know, 14 hands handling little cups of wine and seven salters, and, and you can flip through salters and see wine spots and various uh, salters on the, it's wonderful to have communion hymns with wine on them. It's just, it's, these people practice it. So we, we know that it's hard work. We know that it's a challenge. We know that you might think, oh, this was marvelous. I heard a third of the sermon this week. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Well, there, we have long-term benefits in view, and I want to explain, I want to ha have a message about the children of the congregation, and I want part of this to be about the children of the congregation, and part of this be a message to the children of the congregation. So, with that said, this passage, Ephesians 6, 4, is very familiar to us here, having been appealed to regularly as we have urged and argued for the necessity of a Christian education for Christian kids. Christian kids should get a Christian education. Fathers are instructed not to provoke their children, which is something that fathers are prone to do. Uh, whenever the Bible says to a particular group of people, hey, you group of people, people in that group, don't do this thing, the reason it's doing that is because they are likely to do that. They've got a predilection to doing that particular thing. Fathers don't provoke your children. Why does it say that? Because fathers tend to provoke their children. Fathers tend to think that their standards are self-evidently true. And instead of using the standards, your, your high, dad, your high standards are to be food for your children, not a club to use on your children. You're supposed to feed your children with these standards. You're not, you're not supposed to clobber your children with your standards. So verse four, fathers don't provoke your children. In addition, as you've been told many times, the word translated nurture here is paideia. This paideia of the Lord is of necessity an all-encompassing reality. Our word education doesn't begin to touch it. Education is a comprehensive word and our word education doesn't begin to touch what paideia actually means. The word actually re represents the profound experience of enculturation, of growing up and being insinuated into, growing up into maturity and uh, being inserted into, growing into a people. And so the paideia of the Lord, Paul is assuming a Christian culture that 
Christian kids should be grown up into. A Christian culture that Christian kids can be grown up into. And the second word, admonition, could also be translated as instruction. Christian kids need a Christian education. Christian kids need Christian instruction. And the apostle requires that they be uh, brought up in an environment dominated by the word of God. One other comment about paideia. If, you know, there, there's a difference between common nouns, uh, chair, boot, uh, table salt. You, know, you, you have um, words like that that are just ordinary words. And then you have other uh, words that are full of meaning, that are, that are rich words. Words like uh, democracy or you know, the, words like that. Now, if you, had, if you met someone who just finished writing, to, just turned into manuscript to some academic press about the history of the table fork um, in English, and it was three, in three volumes, um, your thought, whatever you're saying to him and however polite you're being to him, you're probably wondering to yourself, why doesn't he ask a nice girl out? Why, why, why doesn't he do something useful? Because she would say no. He, he's the kind of guy who, who writes books like that. You would think, why, why would you dedicate three volumes to a table, you know, to silverware? What, you know, what are you talking about? But if he wrote a book, a three-volume history of democracy, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think anything of it because that's a, that's a word that would repay that kind of study, right? Uh, and I, I use this illustration of a three-volume uh, work because I've got in my library a three-volume set uh, by a gentleman on the word paideia, the history of the word paideia. Paideia is that kind of rich word, and Christian fathers are told to bring their kids up in it, a, a paideia of the Lord. Now, that, that said, as a background, today my interest is with the verb rendered as bring them up. The word is used, that word is used just two times in the New Testament. One of them is here, meaning rear or um, bring up. The other use, the only other use, is just a few verses earlier when husbands are commanded to treat their wives as they treat their own bodies. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, same word, and cherishes it. So husbands are told to nourish their wives and it will nourish their wives as they nourish their own bodies. And then a few verses later, they're told to nourish their children in the same way. So, a husband is told to love his wife in Ephesians 5 as Christ loved the church. This is the baseline. And as if that were not enough, he is then told to apply the golden rule to marriage, taking, taking care how he nourishes and cherishes his own body as a rule for how he treats his wife. So, you, you know how Christ treated the church? Treat your wife that way. You know how you treat your own body? Treat your wife that way. He feeds and cares for his own body. And the word for cherish there, it says nourish and cherish. The word for cherish, thalpo, literally means to keep warm. In other words, that's your text for Valentine's Day, if you want, if you want a text for Valentine's Day. A husband is supposed to treat his wife in such a way as she's strengthened, nourished, kept secure, kept warm. He is to be, in other words, extremely solicitous for his wife's welfare. And then, just a few verses later, he uses the same word with regard to the children of this union. Bring them up, feeding, protecting, caring, watching. Fathers are given this central charge. All right, so then, fathers and then mothers together with them are engaged in this vital task of bringing up children. 
But Christian fathers and mothers are not on their own with regard to this. This is not something that, that's detached from our life together here as a congregation. In our practice of baptizing children, which you have just seen a moment ago, we recognize the importance, as a congregation, we recognize the importance of our congregational unity in child rearing when we ask the question, every time we baptize a child, we ask the parents this question. Do you, excuse me, ask the congregation this question in context of the questions we've asked the parents. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If so, signify it by saying, amen. But what does that mean exactly? The word amen in scripture has the force of an oath. When you say amen, you are swearing to something. It has the force of an oath. It's not just, yeah, I guess, or I suppose, or I think so. Uh, when you say amen, you're saying, may it be so, let it be. You're, you're signing on. When you say amen, you're taking a vow. So when Christian parents that you may never have seen before in your life stand up in front of the congregation, and I, I ask you, or Francis asks you, do you intend to support these parents? You say amen, and what does that mean? What does that entail? So let me set up a scenario. Let's say you dutifully said amen at the baptism of little Herbert. And I, I don't remember that there's any Herberts in our congregation. This is entirely hypothetical. If you just started coming a week ago and I don't know your little Herbert, this is not about him. <laughs> Let's say you dutifully said amen at the baptism of little Herbert, and it's now three years later, and little Herbert, cuteness diminishing by the year, <laughs> and you know what I mean, you feel sorry, feel sorry for him now because in about five years, you're not going to feel sorry for him at all. Three, he's three rows ahead of you, and he's three rows, uh, three, three rows ahead of your family at church every week, and he's playing the role of a hellion ramped up on nitrous, nitrous oxide. He is one bad little boy, okay? He's bad, and he is as baptized as he is bad. This presents a problem. And the problem is presented to you and your vow. What do you do? Herbert is bad. And I remember Herbert being baptized. We don't do it because they're cute, right? Babies are cute, but that's not why we baptize them. We're doing what we're doing. We're, we're doing what we're doing because we believe certain, th certain teachings from the word of God, and we are committed to those teachings. We can't do, we're not just going through a feel-good ceremony. So the vow that we all take at baptisms requires, at a minimum, two things of us. The first is that if you're an observer of such things, such things being Herbert's behavior, and you have discounted for reasonable differences of family standards, you need to inquire. You need to do something about it. But absolutely make sure that you're observing a divergence from the word and not a divergence from your house rules, a divergence from the, the word. He's uh, blaspheming. He's striking his mother in her face. It, but if you say, well, we don't let our kids color pictures of dinosaurs during worship, and the, he's coloring a picture of a dinosaur, um, that's the difference in house standards. That's a, that, those are house rules. You need to factor those completely and totally out. But if there is moral disorder that appears to be increasing 
as time goes by, you have an obligation from your vow, if you see something, to do something. I would recommend that you do this dad to dad and that you do it with questions, not accusations. Uh, um, you, and you don't want it, you want honest questions, not loaded, uh, not loaded questions. Uh, so what makes you think Herbert's not a son of perdition? Um, <laughs> that, that would be a loaded question. Do it carefully. Don't rush into it, but do it. These are, these are vows that we take. They are not decorations that we put on. They are vows that we take. They're not decorations that we put on. We don't say noble-sounding things up front of the church so that if a Baptist wanders in and sees an infant baptism, he says, oh, the word sounded noble. It must, they must be on top of it. Well, we're on top of it or not by whether or not there's act, actual body life going on in this regard. Now, I say this knowing, as, as the pastor, I know that a number of you have done this sort of thing. And I know also that most of the time it goes well. I know that most of the time it goes well. You may have leapt on the way I phrased that. You're saying that some of the time it doesn't go well? Yeah, some of the time it doesn't go well. But most of the time it does go well. Parents who are in over their heads are usually more eager for input than outsiders are to provide such input. Parents who are in over their heads are usually more eager to get help then outsiders are willing to offer it or provide it. That's not always the case, but it is usually the case. And when it isn't the case, consider that the problem may have been an inept approach, Herbert and the son of perdition approach. So I said, begin with questions, not accusative questions. They should be questions like, how do you think Herbert is doing? Do you and your wife feel on top of things? Are you used to, are you used to the way that we're worshiping here where kids sit through the whole service. Generally speaking, you're going you're gonna to pick up on a greater openness to talk about this, especially if you approach it with sensitivity. Now, let's flip this around. I said there were two aspects to this. The second thing that these vows require is a particular attitude if you're the parent who is approached. If you're the parent who is approached, these vows require something of you. This vow does not mean that any critic or any particular critic who comes to you is correct about what they see or that their observations are even sensible, right? There are busybodies who offer, th who, who they say, yeah, I note the difference between house rules and God's rules, but they, they note the difference, but they don't understand the difference and they, they come in a spirit of rebuke and they, come, you know, there are people who do it wrong. There are critics who do it wrong. So you are not obligated by any vow that the congregation has taken or that you've taken to agree with what somebody comes to you saying. You're not obligated to agree with them. But you are obligated to not be defensive. You are obligated to not be defensive. The one thing you may not say is, this is none of your business. You may not say, this is none of your business, because you're the one who brought your kid down to the front of the church and invited everybody to participate in this business. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child. You did that. They didn't do that. You did that. And they agreed. And so it's their business. They may be right, wrong, or in the middle somehow, but it's not none of their business. It is our business. We all took a vow. Now, not only did we all take a vow, 
In addition to that, we, we practice, as I alluded to earlier, we practice child communion. We all come to the same table week after week. This means that we're all being knit together into one body, and this includes your child and your child's critic. That critic may be part of the problem or may be part of the solution, but the one thing that is certain is that the critic is part of the body. The critic is part of the body, and your child is part of the body, and we all took a vow. One last thing is this. You know your child up and down. You know your child up and down, inside and out. You are invested in your child. You love your child. The critic, observing from 50 feet away, may not know your child's name or his hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and may not know what a wonderful conversation you had with him just two nights ago. The critic doesn't know any of that stuff. But because of the way communities work, and because none of us can see the back of our own heads, that person that I've been somewhat unkindly calling a critic may know some things about your child concerning which you have no idea. A three-year-old falls over at church. Let's say you took a knee and looked across and you saw a kid fall over, clonk himself, but he picks himself up, brushes himself off, looks around, and starts to trot across the gym. And when he comes within earshot of his mother on the other side of the gym, he bursts into a wail and runs up to her because he fell over. Now, you don't know that kid's name, and mom does know the kid's name. The observer, who doesn't even know Herbert's name, knows that Herbert is working his mom. And mom doesn't know. Herbert's working her, right? He's, play, he, he's, he's being a little drama queen and he, because he didn't hurt himself. He kept it together. He was fine all the way across the gym. And then, what? Mom doesn't know. In fact, what, what this means is that sometimes parents are too close. Sometimes parents are too far into the weeds, and there's certain things that you do not see that other people who don't know your name or your kid's name can see. All right, that's, that's really important to file away. Um, or take, take a situation a little bit older. Take all the parents of the kids who rode the bus to the basketball game. Those parents know all about your teenage daughter's boy-crazy conversation. They know that and you don't. Let me say that again. They know that your daughter is boy crazy, and you don't. Now, how, do they, how, how, how can they know that? They don't even know my daughter's name. Who's that? Who's, who, who was it? When they're talking to the, around the dinner table, who, was, who said that? Who, who did that? And they're not even sure. They can't even bring up the mental picture of who it is, but they know something that you don't. So factor this in as an ever-present possibility not a certainty, and simply refuse to be defensive. You investigate, check it out. When someone comes to you, say, thank you, thank you very much for keeping your vow. Thank you very much for taking this seriously. I'm going to talk to my wife. We're going to pray about it. We'll check into it. I just really appreciate you coming to me. No defensiveness at all. All the porcupine quills must not come out. If you say, how dare you say anything about my child, you are not keeping your vows. You're not keeping those vows. We don't, we're not doing this as feel-good Kodak, Kodak moments. Well, Kodak used to be a company that made, never, never mind. <laughs> used to be a company back when I started, never mind. All right, so 
Having said all that about the children of the congregation, I want to direct some words to the children of the congregation. So, as you're growing up in the Lord, what sort of spiritual indicators about your own spiritual life should, be, should you be looking for? We're supposed to make our calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10. We're supposed to examine ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. And this can be done without morbid introspection. But how? Keep in mind, in everything that follows, it's not so much what you look to as the way you look to it, the way you're doing it. So um, kids who grow up in a Christian church, kids who grow up in a setting like this, at some point it's going to, say, you're, it's going to occur to you, you know, I'm a Christian because I'm growing up in Christianity, but... If my parents were Buddhists, I bet I'd be a Buddhist. And if my parents were a Muslim, I, uh, I bet I'd be a Muslim. And how do I know that, even, that any of this is even true? All right, so that's a question, an objective question outside yourself that apologetics will answer. But then there's another more likely scenario, and that is, yeah, I, believe, I see all these consistent Christians all around. I believe that Christianity is true. I believe it's real. But how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm really a Christian? How do I know that I'm not a Pharisee? How do I know that I'm not just um, uh, you know, going through the motions? So when we, when we want to know if someone's genuinely a Christian, we're not looking for dramatic conversion stories like Saul on the road to Damascus. Those conversion stories do happen in the world, but for kids whose parents have obeyed our text this morning, bringing you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, such stories are not the norm. Your parents were commanded to ensure that you had a boring testimony. Fathers, make sure your kid has a boring testimony testimony. Now we should all thrill when someone has an exciting testimony and they used to be with the Hells Angels and they used to be in charge of all the cocaine deals on the West Coast and then they shot a guy uh, in Reno just to watch him die and then they are in prison and, and th then they're in prison and the governor's an evangelical Christian and he comes and he leads them to the Lord and then he pardons him and now the man is uh, traveling around the country telling people about Jesus and all the covenant kids in the su special Sunday evening service have their heads go, oh, I'll never have a story like that. And mom glares at them down the road. You'd better not. <laughs> we were commanded by God to make sure that you didn't have a story like that. That's not where the freshness of the story comes from. The freshness of the story does not come from how lurid the testimony is. The freshness of the story is the freshness of the gospel. It's freshness that comes from the word. So, for you covenant kids, uh, let's put it this way. Everybody here knows that the sun is up. Everyone here drove to this church service in the daylight. You know the sun is up. But you don't have to know the exact moment when the sun broke the horizon. You don't have to know the precise moment the sun rose to know that it's up. In the same way, we should know that the sun of God is up in our lives. We should know that Christ is present in our lives. And the Bible gives us indicators. So for you covenant kids, what are the assurances of salvation? Fortunately, they turn out to be the same as the assurances of salvation for everyone else because we're one congregation. All of the Bible applies to all of us. So I'm, a, I'm directing these remarks to the 10 and 12-year-olds. But if you're younger than that, you're invited to listen in. And if you're older than that, you're invited to listen in as well. So here are things that the Bible says directly about how we know that we know. 
How do we know that we belong to God? First, we see in 1 John 5.13 that we're to believe in the name of Jesus. We are to hold fast to Jesus Christ, Romans 10.9. This is the foundation of everything else. Do you trust in Jesus? This is all about Jesus. The Christian church is all about Jesus. Worship is all about Jesus. So we begin with him. What do you make of Jesus? What is your attitude toward him? Is it love? Is it hostility? Or is it indifference? When kids grow up in the church and they're not truly Christian, generally it's going to be indifference rather than hostility. Rather it's going to be, usually it's going to be indifference. But those are your options. Love, hostility, or indifference. Christians love Jesus. Christians love Jesus. They follow him. Jesus is everything. So first, what is your view of Jesus? What do you make of Jesus? Do you love him? Are you hostile to him? Are you indifferent? Are you like one of those characters in the Narnia stories that when the name of Aslan is mentioned, like Edmund, you recoil? I don't, I, I don't, like, that, I don't like that name. Jesus is everything. That's the first thing. Second, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit, 1 John 4, 13. The spirit is given to us as a guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and 6. The spirit is given to us as an assurance. And then that leads to the next question, so then how do we know that we have the spirit? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and Ephesians 5, 9, the spirit grows things, the Spirit grows things in our life. And secondly, Romans 8, 13, the Spirit kills things. The Spirit grows things in your life, and the Spirit kills things in your life. And many of the passages that we're looking at here tell us explicitly how we know that we know God. Notice how it goes with this one in 1 John 4, 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him. How, do we, how, do, how can I know that I dwell in him? The Bible has a verse that says, here's how we know that we dwell in him, that we have the Spirit. And the Spirit's presence is made known by nurturing certain things in your life and by killing certain things in your life. Third, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 3, 14. What is your attitude towards those that you know really know God? Do you want to be with them or are you repelled by them? Now, you don't know if you're, let's say you're wondering if you're a real Christian but you do know certain others who are real Christians. You know certain people who are genuinely Christians, other kids who are genuine, real Christians. And I'm not talking about the goody two-shoes. I'm not talking about the fastidious ones. I'm talking about the real Christians. You know, do you know in your circles, kids who are sincere, honest Christians? What do you make of them? What is your attitude toward them? Is it respect? Is it admiration? Is it constant irritation? When one of those genuine Christians raises her hand in Bible class to answer a question, do you roll your eyes? All right, if you say, oh, good grief, here we go again. Jesus, some more, some more Jesus, some more consistent Christianity. I hate that stuff. You know, if you're telling yourself, I hate that stuff, listen to yourself. Right? So if you, if you don't think you're the best Christian in the world, but you admire and respect genuine Christians, and you, want, you really would like to be more like them, and you like to hang around them, you like it when you're with them, um, the Bible says we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's another indication. 
Next, and, and said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children. We're talking about child, uh, being childlike, not being childish. Become as little children. You shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. Jesus says that a mark of true conversion is humility of mind. Becoming like a little child. When it comes to spiritual issues, are you humble? Or are you a know-it-all? Do you, are you, do you have defenses up? Are you prepared to tell people, All right, I, I go to Christian school, I've got a Christian education, I've read the Bible, you know, I, I know that, I know it. So whenever someone's talking to you about where you are with God, and your reaction is, I know that, I, I know that, that's a bad reaction. Right? That, um, you want to hear what other people have to say that might be of use to you. Next, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so, be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. A marked characteristic of life is hunger. In this case, hunger for the word. I'm not talking about whether you've read the Bible before, because for many of you, it was assigned. Right? You've read the Bible all right, because you have a class. It was assigned. I'm asking here whether you have any hunger for it? Do you read your Bible or do you listen to sermons because you're hungry for spiritual truth? Peter compares it to being a newborn. When you were first born, nobody had to give you hungry lessons. Nobody had to give you hungry lessons. Later on, they gave you piano lessons. Later on, they gave you violin lessons. Later on, they gave you history lessons. But nobody had to give you hungry lessons. As babies who are born alive are physically hungry, so those who are born spiritually alive get hungry. They want, they want to close upon truth, and they want to close upon truth from God's word. And then, next, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, and to us which are saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing, and to whom the cross makes no sense, and those who are saved to whom it does. So here's another indicator. When the gospel is proclaimed, when the gospel is preached here, or when the gospel is embodied in the Lord's Supper, when the gospel is presented to you, does it make any sense to you? Or is it all just yammer, yammer, Jesus, yammer, 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 Bible, yammer, be good? If that's what you take away, be good, pedal harder, try harder, um, that's not gospel, that's not gospel. So does, does the gospel click? Does the gospel make sense to you? First John two, next, 1 John 2, 3. And hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So here's another explicit statement of how we know. We know because we obey Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. We know that we're real Christians if we act like real Christians. We know we're real Christians if we act like real Christians. We are following Jesus if we do what he says. Jesus says in one place, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, some of you might stumble over this one and say, but I don't obey perfectly. I stumble. I, we confess our sins every week. We kneel and we confess our sins. How is that possible? If, Christ, if true Christians are, are people who do what Jesus says, then all, uh, there must not be any true Christians because we all stumble in many ways. Well, this leads directly to the next assurance of salvation. The first one is there, there needs to be a real difference between the life of a believer and the life of an unbeliever. The believers have to actually follow Jesus and they have to actually take what he teaches seriously. 
And if you, if you just dismiss him, then that's not Christianity at all. But if you stumble, if you sin, when you stumble, when you sin, what happens then? In Hebrews 12, 6, Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The Bible teaches that if you're not disciplined, you're not a child. If you're not disciplined, you're not a child. God doesn't spank the neighbor kids. So the previous mark should not be clutched in a false and unreasonable perfectionism. We do still sin. But what happens when we sin? When we fall, when we're tempted, when we stumble, when we sin, does God spank us? Does God deal with us? Does God treat us as his beloved children? And he says, I, I can't let that go. I want to correct that. God doesn't spank the neighbor kids. And so you put all this together. So it is that all of us, adult and child alike, must always return to the proclamation of Christ. 1 John 5, 13 says this, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That's all of you here. You believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life. God wants those who believe in him to know that they have eternal life and that, they, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He wants those who believe in the name of the Son of God, to know they have eternal life, and he wants them to further believe in the name of the Son of God. And that applies to our little ones, that applies to kids, that applies to school-age kids, that applies to teenagers, that applies to adults, that applies to the elderly, that applies to everyone in the body of Christ. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that as we think about these things, as we medita meditate on them, I pray that you would make it fruitful. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you've heard this morning, as you know, all the baptized are welcomed and invited to partake of this table with us, including baptized children. This is because the Bible says that all of Israel was baptized in the cloud and the sea. All of Israel ate spiritual food and drink in the wilderness, and those things were written as examples for us, 1 Corinthians 10. All the new Israel, all who have passed through the waters of Christian baptism, are invited to partake of this spiritual food as well. But there's a warning here for all of us as well. All Israel did not receive the covenant promises in faith, and so they were judged. And so likewise, Paul says that some, those who do not honor Christ at the Lord's Supper, some of them get sick and some of them die. So we do not welcome our baptized children to this table because it is cute or because it is entirely safe. As Mr. Beaver said to Lucy, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus says to let the little children come to him and not to prevent them. And so we want to obey him in this. But this should never be a flippant or casual thing. It is a joyful thing, but not a thoughtless thing. If we are not teaching our children to trust Christ, to know Christ by faith, then we're actually asking God to judge us and our children. But the point of the warning is not to erect an electric fence around this table. The point is a repetition of the gospel, the good news that you've heard this morning and hear over and over again. There's only one way to the Father, Jesus the righteous. There's only one safe place for sinners, and that is in the shadow of the cross of Jesus. So come in faith, come teaching your children to believe, and children, come believing in Jesus. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you 
that you have caused us to be born again to a new and living hope through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have welcomed us here to your table as your beloved children. We praise you and we thank you for this great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. For the message this morning about the children of the congregation to the children of the congregation. So I have a catechism question that I'm going to ask you and I'll give an answer to and then something that you can talk about in your families on the way home or at lunch today. And the question I want to ask is why does the pastor raise his hands at the end of the service when he's giving the benediction, when he's giving the final blessing? Why does the pastor raise his hands? The answer is, is what he's doing is he's blessing you, but it's, it's, a, it's a symbolism of putting his hands on you. He's actually laying hands on you. And if you actually go to Numbers 6, which is where the benediction is taken uh, that I'm going to give you in just a minute, that was originally given to Aaron, God specifically says, give this blessing to Israel, and so put my name on the children of Israel. And so when you hear, the, the reason why he raises his hands is he's laying his hands on you, why? To name you. He's naming you after the name of your God. He's putting his name on you, why? Because you're his children. Right? Fathers name children. And so every time you see the pastor put his hands up to give you the blessing, remember that means that you're a child of God. Do you want his blessing on your life? Do you want his hands on you? Do you want him to be your father? Well, it's here, it's free, it's for the taking. So receive with believing hearts as children of God, the blessing of your father. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and grant you his peace and amen.